Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. John Woodside, Ottawa-based climate reporter for Canada's National Observer. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. Welcome to the show, John. Today we're going to talk correction, recession, depression, celebration. Also, the Emergency Measures Act. Look, it's it's what the police asked for. Or, you know, they didn't actually ask, but it, it's probably what they meant. I mean, they were implying. They, they waggled their eyebrows, tapped their nose, something like that. Welcome to Shortcuts, John, where we talk shit about the news. Yeah, great to be here. Happy to do it. This episode is brought to everybody by Jan Van Heusen, Dan McLean, Seth Boundy, Graham Haggerty, Lauren Simmons, Brett Uniat, Brenda Barnes, and Sean. My name is Sean McGee, and I live in Thamba Cay, Yellowknife, um, which is in Senende, uh, Northwest Territories. And I support Canada Land because I think it raises the voices that need to be heard, and it has such a high level of integrity for telling the stories that are important to me. I call it hell, but... 
It's more like purgatory. Purgatory is a place where you go to wait, and that's what all these people are doing. They're waiting, and waiting, and waiting, and waiting, and waiting just to drop off their bags. People have been talking about waiting four hours at this Toronto International Airport. I'm so in shock at this place. It is the biggest disgrace known to man. That's former NHL player Ryan Whitney. John, I mean, if we can't give preferential treatment to hockey players in Canada, that is the biggest disgrace known to man. And I'm not even looking at this Pearson Airport story in isolation. Just flipping through the newspapers, checking my news feeds, the airports are breaking down. The gas prices are out of control. In Toronto, drivers putting the brakes on summer trips when the price per liter hit $2.11. And John, emergency rooms are breaking down. Our hospital system is overflowing at capacity. Kind of feels like societal collapse a little bit. Feels a little bit like what everybody thought was going to happen in March 2020 or what was happening, but then... A lot of money was thrown at the problem. It seems like we kind of like stepped back from the brink. Everything kind of was maintained. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I wonder like, did we not just defer societal collapse? Is this is, is society itself collapsing? What do you think? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, when the pandemic happened, I mean, a lot of money was thrown at it. There was a lot of uh, response that was needed. And yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of economic shocks and challenges right now, but to me, there's so many variables that are going into this, right? I mean, like the war in Ukraine is driving a lot of inflation. A lot of the sanctions that were uh, slapped on Russia is doing that. And part of what we're seeing is also just kind of like the blowback of what's kind of an economic war. Obviously, there's like a very real war going on there too. But like the West's general response, Canada's response to it, the United States, it's been a very economic tactic. I mean, we live in such a globalized financial world that, you know, moves like putting sanctions on Russian oil and gas, trying to shift capital flows out of out of the country. I mean, like these things just have massive ripple effects. I'm not really entirely convinced that, you know, the Canadian government's been fully transparent with the public about what the cost is of these actions. You know, that's not to say don't do it or, or, or whatever, but I mean, like we need to kind of be realistic that there's going to be a blowback to things we do too, right? Yeah, I, I want to dig into kind of like the mood and the picture that we're getting from media coverage and what bearing that has on reality, how much it reflects reality and how much it affects reality and kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. All of those stories about pain at the pumps and chaos at the airports, et cetera, et cetera, really it's the business pages. And and I know that a lot of people who read, you know, investment news and business news are a lot more financially literate than me. I mean, maybe I represent like the ignorant majority and like I mostly just get a vibe from, from business news. <laughs> right. In terms of news I can use, I figure by the time I'm reading about it, and I don't read much past the headline, any kind of practical impact, the smart money's already left the market by the time I'm reading about it. So all that's left is vibe. From raw materials to booking freight to fuel for delivery trucks, higher costs are everywhere. Nearly one in four homeowners say they will have to sell their home if interest rates go up further. If inflation does not come under control, Central banks will be forced to raise rates to the level that's required to correct it. But as central banks started to raise interest rates, investors fled risky assets, prompting a crypto collapse. Just goes on and on. I mean, I scan headlines. I scan the Globe and Mail. Let me just give you a few of these really optimistic headlines from the Globe and Mail. It's hip to be bare. 
business leaders join chorus of economic doomsayers. With interest rates soaring, these cherished personal finance rules are invalid. More Globe and Mail. Some see few signs of a bottom in U.S. stocks, even after steep sell-off. The worst is yet to come. Private mortgage lender Magenta suspends new loan applications until fall. Oh, that's great. So even if the price of homes uh, drops, you can't get a mortgage from the biggest private lender. Finally, Globe and Mail. How to sell the family cottage without upsetting the kids. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. Like... As I understand it, for my feeble economic brain, markets go through corrections. They might even go through recessions. But what you really don't want to have happen is fear of fear itself. It's a domino effect where people like get their assholes so clenched and so scared that they just stop spending money. And that's when something that maybe was a necessary correction could actually like spin you off into depression. We talk about harm reduction in media, usually about other stories, but like... Can you apply a harm reduction lens to business reporting? Because it seems to me like the cumulative effect of these headlines is like, all right, I'm eating rice and beans from now on. I'm canceling my vacation. I'm not spending another cent because we're in for hell. Yeah. When you read the business press, I mean, like usually what you're seeing is coverage written for people in the investing community, right? Like we don't see a lot of how it actually applies to people's real life, but I mean, the truth of the matter, right? I mean, I think kind of what you're alluding to here is that whether we like it or not, all of us, we're all stuck on this boom and bust cycle. You know, they, they call it the business cycle or, or whatever. But I mean, this is just the way our economies function is every few years, really, there's there's a, a bump. You know, we call it a recession or a depression if it gets big enough. Uh, but what it practically means, right, is that people, you know, usually women and people of color, they're the ones who are going to be most affected. They get thrown out of the jobs first, usually the last to get hired back. You know, there's like a real uh, human impact on these economic ebbs and flows, I guess, if we want to put it that way. So then when we think about harm reduction and actually like then how would we apply a harm reduction lens to this? I mean, we would need to see financial coverage that like takes seriously what the economic challenges we have in front of us and would apply it to what people could actually do, not just what investors would do. I mean, some of those headlines that you threw out earlier, like I've, I've read a couple of those stories. And I mean, some of them are just written in a completely different language, right? I mean, it's not written for people who don't have the investing expertise. And that's kind of part of it, right? Like financial reporting sometimes relies a lot on jargon. It's impossible to follow unless you steep yourself in it for a while. But the way then that I think Canadian reporters or reporters generally, if they're doing financial reporting, they need to strip out that jargon. They need to put it into language that's actually accessible for people. To me, that's what a lot of harm reduction would look like in this world is is actually trying to apply the economic challenges and sort of economic solutions and things like that uh, in a way that matters to people, not just, you know, not just the investors, not just the people on Bay Street. I think it's deeper than that. I mean, on the one hand, I get your point that like, let's deal with this in sort of um, news you can use and actually relate to people and not have this specialized language, which is really just about trying to speak to it is a niche community. It's probably a big one and it's an influential one, but it's, it's, you know, it's investment advice and it's written in the language of, of investment advice. But there's also a grander conceit, especially when you get to the personal finance stuff and the Rob Carrick stuff and the Globe and Mail. There's a conceit, I think, to all mainstream business coverage, which is we're all in this economy together. And I mean, you even hit some of the talking points and I think there's, there's legitimacy to them that if there is a serious economic consequence, a recession, God forbid, or depression, yes, that, that is going to affect some people really badly, uh, disproportionately. But Woven into that, we're all in this together rhetoric is that we're all on the same page that like profits should be growing every year 
Yeah. Everything should always be growing. And that when we hear these stories about pain at the pump, how does that live in the same universe? This is an anomaly. It's a bad thing. Here's Joe Blow. It costs some more money to live and get to work. Okay, fair enough. But we're also trying to be fact-based journalists, and we know that if we continue to burn fossil fuel at the rate that we are, like, for a fact, we're heading off a cliff. So at what point does that start to have an economic reality and, and, and the true costs of that get reflected in the price? If we're trying to bring the cost of housing down, I guess I push back a little bit at this, like there's this, this all-in together rhetoric that what we all want is a booming, growing economy always, even as we simultaneously know we're in the middle of a housing crisis due to speculation and that we're just not anywhere close to doing what we need to do to curb carbon emissions. Like, let me give you a couple of headlines here. Yeah. One from the Globe and Mail. Is the Trudeau government's plan for quick, deep cuts to oil emissions too ambitious? Yes, <laughs> for says the editorial board of the Globe and Mail. Now, as I understand it, the Trudeau government's plan to cut oil emissions is not compatible with science's projections of what cuts need to occur for us to prevent hitting a temperature increase that is a point of no return, right? Like even if we actually hit his plan, it's not enough. And the Globe is saying his plan, which we know is not enough, is itself too ambitious. Yes. The National Post, as usual, goes right for it. Trudeau puts an anti-oil agenda ahead of affordable food. <laughs> so it's pitting this, this climate agenda against your ability to afford food. So I guess what I'm asking you is like, to what extent does the media just sort of become entrenched in, in advocating for the status quo? On the one hand, the news is about outliers and anomalies, like what happened today that was weird and different. But how do you do that kind of news reporting in a world where we're trying to be fact-based in our journalism and we know that the facts are that we are in the middle of a certain emergency and this is the small window in which we can do something about that emergency? Totally agree. I mean, like the fact that the economy affects everyone differently, it's it's total bullshit that we're all in this together, right? And that uh, a sort of a rising tide lifts all boats and we're all going to be good. That That's not how it works, right? I mean, like the people at the top get profit through the work that workers are doing, right? We have a polarizing economic system that separates people. Uh, it's why we have growing wealth inequality. It's, yeah, of course, the, the economy is absolutely affecting everyone differently. And it would be great to have coverage that actually reflected that in our mainstream media. And unfettered growth is certain destruction, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Having an economic system based on endless growth, endless extraction is fundamentally, it means by definition, unsustainable. You can't have that in a world of limited resources. At some point, something breaks. Tying that then into the way uh, I mean, the way like the Globe and Mail and the National Post report on that or, or the editorial boards, I don't want to say reporting because like there's the Globe has like good reporters who are doing interesting stuff. But like that editorial board, I mean, to talk about the climate stuff is too ambitious. I mean, I mean we need to just be straight up. This is what climate denial looks like in 2022. It's not listening to the science, quite frankly, not even listening to the economics. It is off on its own universe that is just it, it's defending the status quo, but it's but it's misleading people too, right? And and so to kind of like break that down, part of the problem here is that a lot of financial journalists don't have a strong climate understanding. A lot of climate journalists don't have a strong financial understanding either. So like, but it's how these things interact with each other. So when the Globe and Mail is talking about, oh, you know, cutting uh, oil and gas production, that might be too ambitious. What they're relying on is, in my opinion, a fundamentally broken understanding of where we're at in the climate conversation right now. 
the liberals, they have this goal, right, of reducing our emissions about 40% by 2030 on the way to net zero by 2050. We need to be like really clear that net zero by 2050 is itself a greenwashing goal. Quite frankly, it's not like a real thing. It's an aspirational thing you can maybe aim towards. But the Paris Agreement, you know, our, our legally binding uh, targets, the things that we are committed to, the goal of the Paris Agreement is to hold global warming to as close to 1.5 degrees Celsius as possible. We're already at like 1.1, 1.2. And the projection is we could uh, cross that 1.5 threshold in eight years. So the 2050 goal it's not interchangeable with uh, with the short-term reduction stuff. Like we need to have immediate large-scale reductions right now in the next eight years if we're going to have any hope. We, you know, we need to be like very clear-eyed about this. We have a decade to cut our emissions 40%, and, and really our fair share is more like 60%. But if, if that's our goal, we want to cut emissions that much, we need to start looking around at how the hell are we going to do that? Because we're sure as hell not going to be taking every car off the road and replacing it with an electric vehicle in that time. We're not going to be retrofitting every single building in this country so that it's energy efficient and built to a net zero standard. We're not going to be able to intervene across all these multiple points. We need to be hitting the big ticket items. And the big ticket item, the elephant in the room in Canada, is oil and gas production. You can't be saying we have a real climate goal. We, you know, we need to do it. We need to be ambitious. We can do it. But we need to also increase our oil production. No, that's not how it works. The second kind of greenwashing thing here that the Globe and Mail's done in this editorial is it's relying on, I'm not sure if like a loophole would be a fair way to characterize it, but the way the Paris Agreement works is that a country is only responsible for the emissions within its border. What that means practically for Canada, because we export most of our oil to the United States, is that those emissions that will eventually come when the oil is burned, we don't count those. That's someone else's problem. So that's why... The globe, and that's why industry is so big on carbon capture and how we can have net zero oil, quote unquote, which is another greenwashing bullshit phrase. It doesn't exist. Net zero oil doesn't exist. The only way you could kind of uh, have that on paper is by ignoring the 80% of emissions that'll come when it eventually gets burned. Well, we're dealing with two solitudes too in terms of media production and consumption because you're dealing with Globe Mail's business coverage, which is like pitched directly at investors. And then you've got uh, a burgeoning environmental press or, or climate crisis press and the National Observer and the Narwhal chief among them, who I think it's fair to say are probably read by a completely different people with completely different priorities. I don't know, do you try to somehow reconcile those two things. I don't consider myself any kind of a climate activist and I'm not really any kind of an investor. I'm, I accept the science, but I, I'm invested in the system as many people are. I got an RSP and whatnot. Do you try to do journalism that appeals to that middle? Like, I guess I care in a short-term way very much about what happens to the economy. And then I care in a more like curl up into a ball in the corner and fret for my children's future way about, you know, what, what's going to happen over a span of decades, not months. So like, what what's the right way to tell me a news story? And is that even a priority for either side? The way I approach these kinds of things, I guess, is uh, starting with the science, right? Like, I'm a reporter, I have to go with the facts. And, you know, the, the United Nations, they have the, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they've been putting out these reports uh, over the past year that are spelling out some of the most dire consequences that we've heard yet. And what the scientists are telling us, and it's important to stress that these are signed off on by like the world governments and scientists. This is pretty conservative because of just what a big project it is. The conclusion they're coming to is we need like radical, fundamental, systemic change to how our societies operate. 
Like that is a, a huge thing for scientists to be saying. But then somehow by the time, you know, it gets filtered through the media landscape, it kind of gets presented to audiences as if, well, that's kind of like some radical thing that's not really plausible. You know, like we need to be realistic about this energy transition. I mean, that's filtering it through a subjective lens about whatever we imagine is politically possible. In a country like Canada that is, you know, practically like a petrostate, uh, it's hard for people to imagine a world beyond oil and gas if, you know, the only people you're speaking to are like politicians that are in climate denial, uh, banks that are in climate denial, fossil fuel companies that are, of course, uh, deeply invested in delaying a transition. This is, quite frankly, the problem that we have in this country is that there's a big environmental movement that are on the ball and trying to push things. But most of the people that I think a lot of mainstream media would consider experts are not fully credible on this. We even see a lot of the time uh, banks get presented as if they're like a neutral player on this. Returning to our original lens on this of just like what to make of a week of really gloomy, shitty sounding news. It's very frightening. And then like trying to relate that to what you just said. What's going to motivate this massive systemic change to how everything works? For a moment, it seemed like the pandemic might do it. And in those early frightened moments, pretty much everyone I spoke to when I called up people for these like isolation interviews said, you know, I'm scared right now, but maybe this is our opportunity to build back something very different and actually deal with reality. And then it seems like every lever was pulled to throw money at the problem and keep things on track and return to a status quo. And, and we can't have everything break down and let people know, like, it's going to go back to normal, even though we knew normal wasn't working. And now I can't help but wonder the same thing that maybe those checks are coming due and it's out of the control of government to kind of just like force things onto the tracks. And I don't know, do things have to unravel before the, before they get built back better? Like, do you have to hit rock bottom before you actually like deal with denial? Yeah. I mean, I think that's sort of where things are heading. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'd call the silver lining, but I mean, like one of the things in our economic system right now is that the threat of losing money is a pretty good motivator for investors. Now, that, that causes some problems. I mean, it causes the problem of people want to delay a transition. But at the same time, there's at least a growing recognition that this is a real threat. You know, just recently, uh, the Bank of Canada did its annual financial system review and where they spell out what are the major threats we see to, to the Canadian financial system. And, you know, most of the coverage around this was around housing, which you know, we have a housing crisis, fine, but climate was one of these risks. And, and the risk that is there that the Bank of Canada is saying is that basically we could have a bunch of stranded assets, basically things that were once expected to be worth a lot of money are suddenly worth nothing. That, it, it's a big risk for the Canadian economy. Sometimes oil and gas is imagined to be like a, a huge part of the Canadian economy. It's, I mean, it's, a few percent of our GDP, it's not insignificant. But like most of our peer countries, we're a country that does service sector stuff. I mean, we've got lots of landlords too. Uh, oil and gas isn't that big. We'll be able to survive a transition. What's emerging, I guess, in this financial conversation around climate is that it's an unavoidable risk. Financial institutions are understanding that there's a very real risk from damage from climate change, like fires and floods, all that stuff's going to risk their investment. But there's also considerations around ah, shit, that the oil field that we were expecting to last 30 years, demand for oil dried up, it's suddenly not worth very much anymore. That's going to complicate our ability to pay back our loans and, and so on. Like, And it can ripple out into the economy. 
This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. John, it's your first time on Shortcuts. Welcome. Uh, but you may be aware that we consider it our job to alert people to news stories that they might otherwise miss and which they really shouldn't miss. We try to duly note them. Can you duly note something for us? Yeah. Right now there's a climate conference going on in Bonn. And the thing that I think is really being slept on here is uh, something that has to do with climate diplomacy, climate finance, and really climate reparations. It's uh, kind of a wonky sounding thing. It's called loss and damage financing, but uh, it's a pretty important thing. And in the background here is that to get the Paris Agreement signed, rich countries promised uh, poorer countries that by 2020, they would provide $100 billion worth of climate finance every year. Uh, that promise was broken. The last numbers we had were about $80 billion. And Canada and Germany are working on what they call a delivery plan. How are we actually going to deliver this money? And what's important about this is that this is coming at a time when we also all recognize that the finance that's going to be needed to, to help countries pull off this energy transition is going to be in the trillions of dollars, not billions. So trust has been broken at a very difficult time while these negotiations are heating up. So right now in Bonn, there's this conference going on. Uh, it's about the halfway point between the annual climate change conference, the COP26 in Glasgow last year, COP27 will be in Egypt this year, and loss and damage financing is is kind of the big thing. And, and what it means is essentially a big pool of money uh, that would go towards countries to pay for damages, damages from floods, fires, basically climate catastrophe. At COP26 in Glasgow, uh, the United States and Europe spiked a deal. China and uh, the G77, they came up with a deal that would provide this kind of financing, and the West spiked it. 
So this is the big hot topic leading into COP27 this year in November is, are we going to get this money together? What's this money going to look like? And the fact it's being negotiated right now, and I haven't really seen any coverage of it. To me, it's a big blind spot. Duly noted. I'm going to quickly duly note this story that's reported here in Toronto on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. And this is how the story broke. The story broke that the media has a scoop. They've learned that the chief of Toronto police is going to apologize. It's a news story about an upcoming apology to the black community. Sort of strange. We, like, we've learned they're, they're about to apologize. And then you get into what the apology is about later on in the story, which has to do with the release of race-based data that the cops have been collecting when it comes to the use of force and strip searches. And... What I want to duly note is that the way that the public comes to know the story is not the results of this data or the report on the data, uh, which will be revealed by the time people listen to this, that will be out, which I will imagine will demonstrate that the use of force and strip searches is much more prevalent on racialized communities, specifically the black community. That's not the way this news is being delivered, like, which wouldn't be a huge shocker, but the data helps us understand and quantify the problem. Instead, the apology of the police is the breaking news headline. How did the media come to learn this wonderful scoop that they got ahead of that an apology is forthcoming? A police memo leaked. That's what memos do. They have minds of their own and they just sort of leak. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder who leaked it. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, it's entirely possible they didn't want this to get out. But it's also, I think, reasonable to consider the possibility that the police are good at this and were able to essentially front load their apology above the actual racist abuses that they're apologizing for, that their coming apology gets top billing. Maybe that's intentional. Maybe we should look at this a little bit skeptically. And maybe I know that everybody likes a leaked memo. Every reporter loves the ability to get ahead of things. But I kind of wonder if we shouldn't consider some of these dynamics when we're reporting stories like this. Yeah, right. I mean, um, it speaks to, again, like a sort of an unfortunate trend in a lot of uh, reporters that just kind of treat authority figures, people in authority, uh, institutions with authority as like not having motivation, right? I mean, like we need to be skeptical of things people do because they're, <laughs> I think it's obvious to like, you know, the public that people have motivations. I don't know why so many reporters seem to forget this. Duly noted. We invoked the Emergencies Act after we received advice from law enforcement. Did yourself or anyone in the OPS request the invocation of the Emergency Act? I did not make that request. I'm not aware of anybody else in the auto police service who did. So who actually asked for it? My understanding is there is a, um, a misunderstanding of the minister's words. Uh, were you briefed that it was being proposed uh, upon the recommendation of law enforcement? I'm not aware of any recommendation from law enforcement, quite frankly. This was a decision of government. Oh, 
John, when the government took away everybody's rights and they and they invoked the Emergency Measures Act and they said it's because the police advised us to do so, they didn't mean that the police gave them advice to invoke the Emergency Measures Act. Don't be silly. What they meant was that the police gave them advice in general that they could use some tools or things. The advice was – it didn't mention the Emergency Measures Act, but the reasonable thing to do – was to invoke this act that exists for, I don't know, nuclear holocaust, hurricanes, things like that. That's why they had to invoke the Emergency Measures Act. Now that makes sense. We have different MPs saying variations of the police requested this. Oh, they didn't request it. They advised that it could be helpful. But then we still made this choice. Police are kind of being a little unclear about what happened I know Freeland on Tuesday night, uh, there's this committee about the Emergency Act and issues getting grilled on it. And her sort of answer to to the committee was like concerns about economic reputation. Mm -hmm. Like it it wasn't even about police response. It it was like, well, we need to do something about the United States might think we're not a good trade partner anymore. I mean, this, this doesn't really add up to me. Let me be very clear. My principal concern when it comes to the illegal occupation and the illegal blockades is the economic harm that Let was me done be to very clear. I think we can be really clear about what happened here. We were lied to. Any reasonable Canadian newsreader, any reasonable interpretation back when this happened, wow, the Emergency Measures Act, like this is historically like not since the FLQ crisis was the predecessor of this law invoked. It's a huge deal. Fundamental freedoms are affected. Why are you doing this? On the advice of law enforcement. Anybody would reasonably conclude that that's what they're saying. Like we're giving law enforcement what they asked for. We've been advised by law enforcement. So now, okay, who? Ottawa police, not me, RCMP. We didn't ask for it. They lied to us. And it's pretty damn serious if you ask me. Like, I feel like I'm, you know, man yelling at cloud with this stuff because it really does seem to me like outside of like rabid partisan politics, I don't know that anyone cares. I think there is this widespread like consensus. People didn't like what was going on in Ottawa who were not a part of it, uh, either, you know, with their emotional and spiritual support or physical or, or monetary support. Pretty much everybody else was like, ah, that makes me feel really uneasy. I don't like this. And I'm reading a lot of news stories about how terrible it is and in certain ways it was. And then... The Emergency Measures Act is invoked, and then it all goes away. Yeah. Was it the act that led to them to be able to? Could they have done it? Without, who cares? Like, doesn't matter. The point is there was a bad thing, and then there was the act, and then the bad thing went away. I grew up learning about Canada, and the FLQ crisis was a big fucking deal in my education, right? I learned that this was a major turning point, controversy, still debated today. Did they have to do it? And in retrospect, we look back and God, no, Pierre Trudeau did not have to remove people's basic liberties and throw people into vans. I don't know, like suspend habeas corpus for the actions of a few criminals. But at the time, I understand that it really did feel destabilizing and like anything could happen. You compare that crisis to Ottawa, which was, as Freeland says, like a trade issue. It was an issue for people in neighborhoods affected. It was a huge nuisance. Some people will tell me that it was worse than that. But now that the dust is cleared, it was not violent in a physical violence kind of way. Nobody got killed. 
There were, they did not find guns. What we were told and the reasons why we were supposed to be afraid of it, somebody tried to burn down a building. No, that wasn't connected. So what it looks like to me, it was a protest. You know, it, not a protest I agree with, but it was a protest. And this time they suspended civil liberties. And we're finding out now they gave banks the ability and banks used it to freeze people's bank accounts if they thought maybe you were part of this convoy. The bank on their own was freezing people's bank accounts, cutting off families' access to money and faces no liability for that if they got it wrong or if that was unjust. This is a major intrusion into people's rights. And now we're trying to get to the bottom of it and we find out the government lied to us. I mean, there's kind of like the cynical part of my brain and, and, and kind of some other reactions, I guess. But, you know, when the Emergency Act was first called, I think part of, part of my reaction as someone who lives in Ottawa, I mean, I live in a neighborhood that I could hear the honking. Thankfully, wasn't in an area where it was like directly right outside my window. But, you know, I, I was around it enough. And I think kind of when the Emergency Act got called, my first response to it was a confusion because my experience uh, to that point with this protest had been seeing lots of like real shitty behavior, lots of like kind of threatening behavior. But on the police response, I mean, I saw police high-fiving protesters. I saw police helping, you know, protesters carrying jerry cans of gas. Like, oh yeah, like if you want to meet up with your buddies, like they're over there. In my view, like police were not, they seemed to just be facilitating things. I mean, it was a very bizarre, sort of a bizarre situation there. So then when the Emergency Act gets called and gets presented as the police need this to respond, the first reaction is like, well, like what response? The response has been kind of standing around high-fiving people. Yeah, the narrative that it suggests that the police would just love to crack heads and get these people off the streets and, and clear things up for the good law-abiding citizens of Ottawa. But God damn it, these civil liberties, you know, it's just uh, there's been a lot written about that they had a lot of tools and powers at their disposal that they did not use. You know, the thing that I think people should be watching for here and, and where I think there'd be a lot of concern, and I don't want to be like too speculative here, but I mean, it's going back to Freeland's comments about economic reputation, right? The fact that... When we actually like drill down and see what happens, the, the economic reputation doesn't come from Ottawa being occupied. Like there's millions of dollars in like lost revenue that businesses experienced, but that's not anything to to justify the emergency order if the concern is about our international like trade relationship with the United States. That has more to do with the border crossings. But we've seen the, the occupations of the border crossings were more a nuisance than a real issue. People were mostly just diverted to a different border. I think they cleared the major obstacle before the Emergency Measures Act was invoked. That problem was already disappearing. Yeah. The thing that I think is like really important here is that this was an anti-vaccine mandate, kind of sort of a right-wing conspiracy kind of thing that presented these economic shocks. But these aren't the only economic shocks that Canada's dealt with in recent years. I think the concern here that a lot of people would probably have would relate to something like the Wet'suwet'en fight against the coastal gas link pipeline. You know, it was only a couple of years ago when there was like a police raid in, into the nation's territory and there was kind of like cross-country uh, rail shutdowns that brought Canada to its knees, that it brought the Canadian government to signing a memorandum of understanding uh, with, with the nation's hereditary leadership to actually like work on implementing title. Like, this, this was kind of a big thing, but what the government's kind of done now is it's set a precedent where if it feels like its economic reputation could be harmed, 
And, and not even just that it is, if it just sort of feels like it could be, which is what Freeland was saying. It was like, this could potentially harm us in the future. So that justifies an emergency order. What we've now done is we've set up a precedent to uh, crack down on people using economic disruptions as a tool. So where is the where is the hue and cry about that? I mean, it just seems to me like uh, one, two, three connection point, and we certainly heard during those railway blockades, they are. This is like that's you're you're messing with our religion here. That, that's trade. That's 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 U.S. Canada trade. Get the cops in there, shut it down. And in fact, that's not what happened. They they reached an accommodation. It was an effective protest, and that's how that played out. It's hard to imagine a similar scenario playing out to the advantage of the protesters in the future, because now, as you say, what do we do when protesters are threatening our trade relations with the states and disrupting our economy? We turn civil liberties off. Yeah. I mean, like when we see emergency powers get deployed for something like, you know, border crossings, it's not hard to imagine that you could see emergency powers. Again, I'm going to use the coastal gas link pipeline as an example, because that pipeline, right, is to feed the LNG Canada export terminal, like the liquefied natural gas terminal. So this pipeline is moving gas from, you know, a gas deposit on one side of British Columbia to the coast. That LNG terminal, that export terminal is a $40 billion investment. It's the biggest investment in Canadian history. So uh, if they're willing to like, you know, use the emergency act to deal with like, you know, some border disruptions, it's really not hard to imagine that they'd be tempted to use it if there was going to be a disruption that threatened an investment of that size. I also don't want to minimize, I mean, like this protest that happened in Ottawa. Yeah, no one was killed, which obviously good, but but it was not like just a typical protest. I mean, like people were being threatened. Uh, there was all sorts of abuse and harassment happening. You know, it made a lot of residents in the city very unsafe. People were not leaving their homes. Mm-hmm. I think the concern is around state power, right? And how state power gets deployed. And people want to be concerned about overreach. And, and I think it's like fair to recognize when overreach happens. And, and you can also have walk and chew gum at the same time, right? I mean, people can say that occupation. I mean, there were some people there who were doing some pretty awful things and also pretty questionable for the government to be giving itself powers like this on some pretty flimsy evidence by the sounds of it. The real like head scratcher bottom line of this as well is just, it seems to have been purely an optics ceremonial symbolic gesture. Like it wasn't out of necessity. They were under tremendous pressure to show that they were doing something. The federal government looked completely impotent and they were being embarrassed on the world stage and like what the hell is happening in Canada. And it was like, this allowed the appearance that they took stern action, much in the way that Pierre Trudeau, some people still revere him for like, just watch me. Uh, Oh, you think he's a lefty, but look, he can be tough. It feels like we're going to learn more and more about this because there's going to be another inquiry into this. I think we might learn that this was just purely for show, like just a completely unnecessary thing. John, that shortcuts. Thanks for joining me for it. Thanks for having me. It was a great time. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed about the show or anything else at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read what you send. John, where can people find you and your work? Canada's National Observer. Uh, we got the series Financing Disaster, which is mostly what I'm working on right now, which is this relationship between the financial sector and fossil fuel sector. Also on Twitter with Sideful. Those are the best ways to get me, though. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by So Called and syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. 
If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, plus merch and lots of fun stuff, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.